Is education a social science or humanities discipline? It depends who you talk to. So um, there's a lot of debate in education. Um, Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of debate in education. There are the humanities educationalists who, um, like you've got philosophy of education, um, history of education, and they get really grumpy at the social scientists. Um, And then you've got like the social scientists are looking at like how society influences education and things like that and then you've also got the people who just do straight practice so they're just like are we going to talk about pedagogies we're going to talk about structures um and you get into lots of debates like i um, really struggled with my phd and wanting to do promising practices but also the expectation i should be doing a lot of theory and sort mm. of looking at um that side of things whereas i, I really am trying to balance that Maybe Edu- it's talking. a mess. It's such a mess. Education's like we fight with each other about who's doing the right type of research. <laughs> so maybe this is a good segue to the formal introduction of the podcast episode. So this is PH Divas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Dr. Zain Yao. Our first interviewee at where am I doing my postdoc at the University of British Columbia, Suriana. And actually, I've never heard anyone pronounce your last name. So um, it's Suriana Naipi. Suriana Naipi. Yeah. Um, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Education and also is it a, a UBC public scholar? Yeah. And Siriana, would you like to tell us tell us a little bit about like where are you from, what do you work on, and then we'll get into the interview proper. Um, so uh, my first name Siriana is after my great grandmother who raised my mum in the village of Nakinda in Natal City in Fiji. Um, and my last name is my husband's name, and his parents were raised in Avaseli Tamakatonga um, in Niue and. My mum migrated to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and his parents migrated to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and my dad is um, Pākehā or Pālangi or settler. Um, And so my husband and I are like first-generation New Zealand-born Pacific, Um, which means that we're like, we know that people before us travelled a long way away from their families to give us better opportunities. Um, And then I dragged my husband to Canada. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm pregnant now. In case, in yeah. case you can't see her, yes, this I'm is... like super. I'm like six months pregnant, and a big a big part of our discussion was should we stay in Canada and do the same thing that our parents did mm. and give our kid better opportunities, educational wise and things like that. Um, and it's kind of nice because when our parents get sad about us being here, we're like, but you moved to. <laughs> we're just trying to do the same thing as you did for yeah. your, and this is for your yeah. grandchild to think about that yeah um yeah what? this is for the family <laughs> um and i think that that's like that's probably like a little bit of background on on me and um because i'm a new zealand born pacific islander my research is in um, pacific peoples and educational success um which is motivated by my background right i i'm a pacific person who is meant to um, my mum always says that she really wanted us to do better than she did. And um, his, my husband's mum was the same thing. Education is so important. Um, so when I said I was doing a PhD, she's really excited. Mm-hmm. And then when I said I was doing a PhD in Canada, she's not as excited. Oh, burn, burn. <laughs> Would she have preferred you be in New Zealand still or the US? or? Um, I think back home with family and community. Okay. It is kind of weird, right? I'm in Canada researching Pacific people in New Zealand. Mm. Like it's, it's weird, but ranking systems and things like that mean UBC. Yeah. And then because part of it... Do you, is it because of the, the First Nations Institute here, or is it just like um, my, in general? My master's advisor did her study, her PhD at UBC, uh, um, and came to Green College, where we met. Really? Yeah, Damn. She's, she's, you'll meet her at the formal dinner. She's on the board. Oh, cool. Um, okay. And like three months into submit, about to submit my master's, she was like, oh, you should do your doctorate. Have you thought about it? And I was like, no. And she said, oh, you should do it at UBC in Canada. And I went home and told my parents I was moving to Canada. Um, with no idea where UBC was or Vancouver. Okay, <laughs> this will be a great adventure. We're gonna move there. But yeah, I mean, oh. it it was it was an interesting pathway to end up here. I wish I had like some big. Oh, I looked. I mean, I'm really lucky. My advisor, Vanessa Andrade, agreed to take me on because my Maori advisor for my masters knew her and emailed her and said, "I've got an Indigenous Pacific student. Um, take, can you take her?" And so I'm really lucky as an Indigenous graduate student because she's not just my advisor, right? She, there's a community connection there in terms of caretaking. Like, she saw me today and I was a little bit frazzled walking uh-huh. up from the education department. 
and she saw me and she was like, oh, I want to show you something. And in my head, I'm like running over all the different jobs I have to do and how late I'm going to be up and just grad school. And she like brought me over to go look at like these hummingbirds, 10 hummingbirds that were just hanging out in this tree. Because they've got um, sugar water there, like hummingbird feeders. Where, where is it on campus? Outside the education building, the um, okay. staff building. She recognized that I was stressed out uh-huh. from a distance and took me to go just chill, take a moment, enjoy this, think about it. And she was, so I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and raccoons and squirrels, I still stop and look at them. For a raccoon, uh, really? <laughs> that hasn't like gotten boring for you yet? <laughs> Not yet. One of them knocked over my first snowman. Oh, we built a welcome s- to Canada. Yeah, we built a snowman and the next day we got up and there were little raccoon prints and the head was gone and it had eaten the carrot. (laughs) So I was wanting to uh, to talk a little bit more about your work. Um, I think I've heard you frame it one time as like this idea of like decolonizing the university. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. Um, So I always like I always tell people that. Dependent on the day, I'm either decolonizing the university, indigenizing the university, or planning how to burn it down. <laughs> well, that's a great line, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's, it's because some days there's hope, right? There's hope that the university can do something good and it's good for our community and it's good for people. And then other days you're like, nah, <laughs> this isn't no good. Let's start again. Um, but the idea behind decolonizing the university. It kind of depends who you talk to. Some people say it's not possible because so many universities are built on stolen indigenous land. One of my comps exams was like define decolonization and indigenization. And um, yeah, I'm having some like anxiety. You did this. You got through it. You proved yourself. <laughs> and I think um, when I draw the line between decolonization and indigenization with like decolonization, I look to um, Eve uh, Tuck and Yang around it's not a metaphor, it's about returning stolen land. Um, so if we're talking about decolonizing the university, we're really just moving towards a process where the universities either pay for what they took um, or they give it back. And that's, that's like a big, that's a big ask. Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting, like there's some really, Linda Tohuwai Smith did her um, PhD on and the University of Auckland and how the University of Auckland was gifted land by the government to pay for kind of setting up. But the land they were gifted wasn't the government's. They gifted like tribal, um, they gifted iwi land from further down. Oh, wow. And it was Linda Tohiwai Smith's iwi's land. And she kind of went through the cost to her iwi or tribe for the University of Auckland. Like they lost everything in the University of Auckland is our top leading, our top university in New Zealand and has money and has prestige. Uh And the cost of that was her iwi's sort of um, resources. So when we talk about decolonization, how do we address that? So it's not a metaphor. um, And Tuck and Yang's article is really attacking people who are using decolonization as this kind of casual metaphor around decolonizing our minds and things like that, which is recognizing that the entire education system is designed to make us think a certain way. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the good citizen argument where, high, like, for a while, universities, when they were being asked to justify their existence, were like, oh, we make good citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what's a good citizen? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the indigenization argument is um, when you're feeling generous to the university. Okay. <laughs> where... <laughs> Where you're like, there's some hope here. Um, where, as long as we can work out a way to um, integrate or to really embrace indigenous knowledges and ways of being into the university, we can redress some issues. So, it means value, valuing more than one knowledge system, um, and making sure that teaching practices, research practices, what's valuable as knowledge, isn't just some white guy's thoughts, right? Um, I get into lots of trouble with the scientists because <laughs> I tell them, I, I tell them that oh, yes. there's a such thing as indigenous science. Um, <laughs> they're always like, no, there's only one way to science. I'm like, no, science is like, your science as you know it is, is culturally biased. It's, um, and 
it's really I'm not like and then they're like oh so you would rather just not have vaccines no yeah and it, it's it's not an either mm. or argument it's a how do we use both knowledge systems or mm. more than one knowledge system because it's not just the colonizers versus the colonizer there's also other groups that we have to consider so how do we make sure that everybody's knowledge system has just as much value in these institutions mm. is kind of what indigenization's about um and yeah, so like a practical example, I guess, is I, I do some work in something called a Knowledge Makers Project, where I work with undergraduate Indigenous students to introduce them to Indigenous research methodologies, and we write um, we write a publication every year um, where we make space for the knowledge that they learn in their communities and the institutions. So we spend a good two days kind of being like, well, what what is what is the knowledge you hold, mm. and how do we bring it into this space and legitimize like we. I want to say the word permission, but that's not the right word because it's not. But in some ways, it's it's giving them permission to break down those barriers that they sometimes have about what is allowed in the university and what's not. Mm-hmm. And also this idea that like we just don't come to university for knowledge, but we ourselves are knowledge yeah. makers. Yeah. So you hold knowledge. And I think for too long, universities have assumed that they hold all the knowledge. And they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of it, right, is... Like, that's one of the things I, I really struggle with is um, this. The, my work is critiquing the thing that I live in. So <laughs> I like, right? So my work is being like, ah, oh, the university is so stupid, but it's not so stupid that I haven't completely given up on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, right? I still, I still want the piece of paper. There's um, Graham Smith, who's a Māori academic. He um, came to talk at our Indigenous Graduate Student Symposium. I came to talk, he Skyped in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to us, he was like, the PhD doesn't, um, doesn't make you a leader. It gives you the right to serve. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's like really a really, nice. yeah. like that really hit home because for me, research is service to my community. Mm-hmm. It's about, and, and that's like a really different way to the university sees it. The university sees it as they're making these leaders. Yes. Like UBC has their leadership conference. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, lots and lots of money. They want you to become a leader so that you can make money, so that you can donate to the alumni association. Oh, yeah. that's, like, um, it's all the, that's the circle of life in academia. Yeah, and it's really different. Like, it's a different perspective to be like, well, no, this paper doesn't make me a leader. It makes me someone who provides service. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like, there's so many examples of the university that their like core value system is different to the core value system of communities that they say they serve. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, not just the university institution, but also I think the way that the university has us as individual scholars often think of us as individuals. That oh, you know, yeah. like you're building up your individual name. It also becomes sort of neoliberal enterprise about sort of building your brand as an individual, as opposed to like, I guess you say, like doing it for your, our communities. Yeah. So if you get here and they're like, you need to publish, you need to be presenting, you need to be mm-hmm. doing all these things so that your CV looks good, and you're getting funding, but don't. They don't encourage. They say that they encourage group work, but they really don't. The university is not a. It's quite an isolating space, even in graduate school. And we have, like, I have those arguments sometimes. Like, we have those arguments too, right? And and my discipline, education, who's the lead author and who's um, me and a friend, we're thinking about like merging our names because we write so much together. Mm. We were like, oh, wouldn't it be hilarious if instead of like swapping? Because usually, what you do if you're writing a lot together is we just swap. So one person gets lead, then the oh, next person okay. gets lead, um, and you just swap back and forth. And we were like, wouldn't it be hilarious if we just merged our names? And then every time, then we'd have it both on our CV and really mess it up. But That's then, so funny, but how, how would Jay feel about that? It's almost like you're being married married in academic sense yeah, to someone else. Yeah, yeah. no, that, and that, that's why we didn't do it. We were like, if we do this, mm-hmm. we're not, it has no value on our CV in terms of getting a job after this. Like, even though it might be the more like ethically responsible thing in a way. Or right? like it's taking a political, we're making a political statement. The universities don't want your political statement. They want your publication for their rankings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I'm pretty, I'm a frustrating person. I've, I've had a lot of sort of back and forth with my committee where I've been like, well, I came here because my community needs this research. We need some promising practices to change the university. Mm-hmm. But um, I understand that I need to do some pretty deep thinking around um, sort of Pacific ontologies and um, things like sort of the big theory stuff. Um, like I, I think I've written, an art- I've written an article on um, 
how indigenous relationships change over time that doesn't like that doesn't have a tangible outcome but it's an interesting question to ask and that could lead to tangible outcomes and it's been a it's been a really interesting process to try and get my committee to understand that I want to do both because you don't normally do both you don't normally do the big because there's not enough time in the day (laughs) but I have a responsibility to the people that um I came over here for uh, I'm with and like sometimes I go home and I tell my husband about like this really cool idea that I learned about in class and he'll be like cool how does that help our community I'm like um that's nice dear that's nice (laughs) and then I have to kind of like think that through and I think that that's that's part of the difficulty of being in in education is we're a, a professional degree right we make teachers that's what we do but there's this whole other part of education that I'm in, educational studies, where all we do is talk about the system of education and the history of education and who's designed it and who's benefiting. And we don't have those conversations with the practitioners as much as we should. Oh, definitely. And like this, uh, so during the time that Liz and I were at Cornell, like Cornell actually cut their education department. And so like, I, I didn't know that until after, yeah, they completely like killed it. I think during maybe our first years there. And then I like would meet some people that used to be part of it because like all the depart- all the faculty got redistributed and they stopped accepting grad students. But all the current grad students just got reallocated to other departments that were like their temporary homes and they're just sort of wandering campus lost because they don't really have a home anymore. And it seemed like so terribly ironic. Like what happens when it, when a university decides that education is no, no longer important? Right. right? Like the irony <laughs> just like writes itself. <laughs> yeah. And there there are moments like. Um, I've been to a couple of like alumni events for UBC and now Dean will talk about how we're like the top ranked university for educate um, like education is one of the top ranked faculties in the university mm-hmm. and goes about the ranking tables and he'll look at the educational studies department and he'll be like I know that there are problems with the rankings because <laughs> we're like oh yes it's our area we know we, we're self-analyzed yeah. like, like, there's just all this irony and the faculty is driving towards the very structures that other parts of the faculty are going this is ridiculous like we need to opt out Mm. but you can't opt out because then you get cut (laughs) yeah like how do you participate in like problematic systems and like I guess this is always a question for us I I struggle with that a lot (laughs) I struggle with that a lot especially in the area of like indigenization decolonization higher ed like my advisors always saying when I was when I was trying to come up with my questions um I'm using the Talanoa method, which is a um, Pacific research methodology where you don't have questions. Um, I have a general theme and the people that I talk to can talk about, can talk to the theme for as long as they want, or they can talk to me about what they think is important for as long as they want, Um, which is making, it's it's really interesting. But I think what um, ends up happening is my my advisor was like, oh, you need to have a discussion about, is it really worth Pacific people to engage in the system? Because the Pacific at the moment is like our islands are sinking. They say sinking, but we're not sinking. The seawater's rising. Yeah. And um, there are a number of islands that are going to be un- uninhabitable as global warming continues. And one of the core sort of global warming things is, is consumption, right? We're consuming too much. And the reason we're told to engage in higher education is because then we can contribute more to the economy and to contribute to the economy, you have to consume. So Oh, wow. So that's really perverse. So like, you're actually kind of undoing yourselves. Yeah. So we're opting into this system that ultimately destroys our other knowledge system around land and ocean. And when I get asked questions like that, I kind of, it, it does my head in for like a week because the day-to-day needs of my community is an income to feed, clothe, and shelter. But the long-term needs, like, <laughs> what do we give up short-term? Or what do we do short-term that we're giving up long-term? Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. Wow. That got a little too deep. No, no, that's really <laughs> interesting. And I was also wondering, like, because as you're saying, like, your, your parents themselves immigrated to, to New Zealand. When you talk about your community, like, what then is your relationship to New Zealand versus Fiji or something like that? Like, what, how do you think about those different community spaces and so I'm um in New Zealand I'm what they'd call Pacifica which is New Zealand born Pacific and that that's my community okay. right I'm New Zealand born I've been to Fiji a couple of times 
my family are back in Fiji. Um, I've got my bumbu and my tai tai, so my grandparents in Fiji. Um, my actual bumbu, because my bumbu and tai tai like extended family are in Fiji. Um, my, I guess, white person grandmother, or like, <laughs> like my direct, <laughs> like my mum's mum. She's in Aotearoa as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's this really weird sort of double space where um, the work that I do is about Pacifica because they're my community. But I also have an, another community in Fiji that um, I owe service to because a lot of my knowledge and a lot of the work that I do is based on the knowledge that was bought from that land. Um, so my methodology is um, based on masi making and masi making is a um, type of female art form that um, that's that's distinct, like like it's Fijian, you can tell Fijian masi. And I think that that's one of the things that you kind of have to come to terms with as a New Zealand born Pacific person is mm. there, is a, there is a divide between those of us who were brought up and raised in the islands and those of us that were brought up in New Zealand. And there's a certain amount of privilege that I get as someone who grew up in New Zealand versus someone who grew up in the islands. And how am I going to use that privilege to benefit both? Mm -hmm. um, I guess so the Pacific was colonized pretty late. Um, New Zealand had a lot to do with the colonization. So Niue, Cook Islands, and the Tokelau, which are three, and which are three Pacific Islands, are still, um, what was it, Tuvalu? Are still under. They're still New Zealand protectorates. So, um, like my husband, who's Niuean, automatically gets a New Zealand passport. So there's still some remnants of colonialism there. Our education system in the Pacific is based on the New Zealand education system. Um, there is some movement there to kind of move away from that. But if they want to get aid money or they want to engage in, they, they have to play by New Zealand and Australia's rules. So the Pacific has kind of like that neo-colonial where they're not directly in there with the military, but they are, or the missionaries, but they are kind of limiting our economic growth and aid money. And then if, I, if you grow up in New Zealand, it's just better opportunities, like educational opportunities are a lot better. I'm from sort of, I don't have to go to the, like my family's not living off plantation, right? It's my dad's an electrician, my mum's an administrator. Um, whereas for my cousins in Fiji, a lot of them are working in the plantation. I remember going home and my cousin who was like 16 wasn't at school anymore because he was needed um, to work the land. But it's it's their knowledge and that they have in terms of what they've that benefits me if that makes sense, um, and I think I think like a, a maybe a useful div, like comparison is some people here talk about um, urban like urban first like urban first nations so people who grew up away from community, so I grew up away from community but still with teachings from the community. Mm. And that, yeah, the privilege I have is that I have a New Zealand passport. Coming to Canada was not a hassle. Uh, my mum, who swore she would always die a Fijian, got a New Zealand passport to come visit me to m meet her first grandchild because getting to, into Canada with a yeah. Fijian passport is not easy. Like you'd have to get a visa? Yeah. yeah. Like we still have to get a visa with New Zealand, but it's, uh -huh. it's pretty easy. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's sort of that's a privilege that we have to recognize and we have to work out what we're going to use, how we're going to use that privilege to advance the Pacific region. Because at the moment, um, America's done their Asia Pacific turn, which just means remilitarization of the Pacific and no one talks about it yeah. because people forget we're there. I was going to ask, cause like, so my other question is especially, um, I'm not sure if it's also true in the Canadian context, but in the American context, for some reason, like Pacific Islanders get lumped in with Asian American. Yeah. And like, and my understanding is it had to do with like some weird, like legis like that was the only way perhaps to like have the groups be legible. And, but because of that, there's so many groups, at least in the U S that bring these groups together, even though obviously the relationships are so different. Um, and yeah, like what there's, does that also happen for the rest of the Pacific? Do they end up usually... Is it just a particular U.S. based phenomenon that they get lumped in, or so it is a like I know in Aotearoa, in New Zealand, um, Pacific is uh, completely separate from. We've got Asian, Maori, Pacific, Pakeha, and then other, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is always helpful. Um, but 
that in terms of the American classification of Asia Pacific, um, there's a really great article written by, um, I think, Hall. Um, and she writes in response to how the putting Pacific within Asia Pacific completely delegitimizes Hawaiians as indigenous peoples. Mm. So you're, you would never put an indigenous peoples with a migrant group, yeah. but for some reason it's okay to do to Hawaiians. Um, and she kind of goes through how you're made invisible completely because there are other Pacific groups in America like Samoans, Tongans, who mm-hmm. um, are migrants to America um, in, in the term migrant, like long term, like some of them will be a few generations back. But Hawaiians have always been there and now they're getting lumped in. Mm-hmm. And um, she writes, oh, Trask, T- I think it's Trask, T-R-A-S-K. She writes this really beautiful article just saying, you know, what's going on? We, we were part of the Pacific and this was always our land. Why are we not being counted as indigenous in this country? Mm-hmm. American history. It's uh, a strategic military space, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also like, I was thinking like the movie Pacific Rim doesn't actually have Pacific people, right? Uh, no, yeah, right. <laughs> so. <laughs> like, so like Moana, there were so many blogs about Moana. Um, yeah. I went and saw it and I cried. And I think part of that response was that it was mixed. mixed. There's some interesting um, mixtures of Pacific cultures in there. Um, like in the village you have a Samoan house next to a Fijian house architecturally and if you're not Pacific it just looks like a village mm-hmm. but when you're Pacific I was like uh no a Fale does not go next to a Bude <laughs> those are completely different but like I, I cried because I had never seen a movie about the Pacific with Pacific actors like the whole cast was Pacific the voice actors were all Pacific. They, um, no, it's, it, it's, in, it's crazy, but like it was the first, I had a really emotional reaction because it was the first time I'd seen that. And like I went to a mainstream movie theater because mm-hmm. I've seen Pacific film. We have Pacific film, but we always, um, yeah, I think it meant a lot to watch it in Canada because we have them in New Zealand. There's a big enough Pacific population. Like um, my friend just made this movie, Three Wise Cousins, and um, it topped the New Zealand box office when Star Wars oh, came cool. out. Wow. <laughs> okay. I'm like, it's, it's, <laughs> he, he's amazing. He funded it completely by himself. And um, it's just this amazing story about that disconnect we were talking between Pacific born and New Zealand born Pacific. Mm-hmm. And he, it's this amazing story about this New Zealand born Pacific kid who goes back to learn how to be a real Islander. And yeah, I think you mentioned this because it's yeah, yeah, and like okay. kind of what it means to be a real islander, and hey, he comes back home, and it's it's funny. It also makes you cry because it it does pull at those struggles that we have. Yeah, and it like it was he funded it himself, and it ended up showing in Hawaii, um, a few other states. I went to Toronto. I was so angry at him. I was like, I live in Vancouver. Yeah, you just oh, missed the city. Wrong Canadian city. Um, and it was like completely self-funded. And uh-huh. he, emotional, you can watch it online now, but um, pay for it. Do not stream it. Okay. okay. <laughs> Is it on Netflix? No, it's on Vimeo. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll look it up. Well, we'll put a look at, link into it when we uh, post the episode. I think that'll be a good idea. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. He does his own, like, his sister produces it with him. and But it's, yeah, I think it's little things like that with the Pacific is pretty underrepresented. Mm-hmm. People forget we exist. My favorite kind of history lesson is the um, Bikini Island. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did nuclear testing yeah. on that island. And the reason bikinis are called bikinis is because the designer wanted to like use the use a term that had as much shock and awe as a nuclear bomb test so that's why he called them bikinis forgetting that there were people who were living on that island who had to be relocated to test these things and who still haven't been able to go home because of the um radioactive yeah Uh the radiation like but you know and like little everyday things like that that there's a history that ties back to the pacific that people don't know Mm -hmm. i think because one of the first times we really hung out was maybe like the first week where you and Jay um, 
we're doing a showing of the hunt for the wilder people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like one thing that um, so Sarianne and Jay, because Sarianne is pregnant, have now moved out of Green College, our graduate community at UBC. Pregnancy is contagious. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay. But anyway, um, it's uh, so they were sort of like helping to show like this great recent film by Taika Waititi. Yeah. Um, who might be familiar to listeners because I think he's going to be the director for the new Thor movie, mm-hmm. right? And um, he himself is Maori. Yeah, he's Maori. And he also has done other great um, movies like uh, What We Do in Shadows, which is hilarious and about vampires. Liz used to see it because you like vampires. It's about New Zealand vampires. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all of the links are just going to be to all these New Zealand movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was just... So in terms of like Syriana increasing our, I guess, community awareness of Pacific culture, arts sort of things, or just sharing good movies. Well, it's because most people only know, like, Once We're Warriors. And yeah. Once We're Warriors is an amazing film, but it also is quite emotional and quite, um, yeah, it's quite a hard story to watch. And I think um, I should also probably clarify. So in Canada, Māori are referred to as Pacific because um, they're Polynesian. Okay. But in Aotearoa, New Zealand, they're Tangata Whenua, so they're people of the land. So okay. Māori are separate to Pacific in New Zealand. Um, yeah, I should clarify that. So when I'm talking about the Pacific, I'm talking about like Samoa, Tonga, Niue, Fiji, Tokelau, and then Māori, I'll use a different term, but I'll say Māori okay. because they're, um, they're tangata whenua from where I'm from. They're people of the land. So it is, It's pretty scary for the Pacific. We've got um, islands in the Pacific that during a king tide entire houses like the entire island is underwater so like a couple like it's a couple of centimeters but it's underwater um and we've so originally new zealand agreed to take climate change refugees so they were talking about this ages ago they were like yeah yeah we when this happens we'll take people from the pacific um and recently a pacific man tried them on that where he tried to come across as a refugee because he he can't earn a living anymore because when the tides come in, they're salting the earth, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't plant. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. because the UN hasn't, re- hasn't officially recognized climate change refugees as a thing, New Zealand was able to say no. Um, and it's just, we're not talking a big island. Pop- this is one mm-hmm. of the smaller islands. But for some reason, New Zealand just turned their back on this guy and his community. And I, at one point, they were like, oh, he can still fish. I was like, why should he have to... And also, we can't fish in the Pacific. You couldn't, we can't, the reason I say we can't is things like tuna have so much, um, what is it? It's, I think it's magnesium. No, there's something, uh, mercury. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's mercury. mercury. That's like the M word. <laughs> Thank you, scientist. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> have so much mercury in them. It's dangerous for us to eat that much of them now, right? So like my husband is from Niue, which is this um, island in the South Pacific where it drops off like you can see whales from standing on the rock on oh, the island so cool. um yeah, yeah, yeah it's totally safe but it drops off so they catch tuna quite regularly um and it's a main staple but it's not good for them and so beyond climate change the plastic in the ocean is really kind of screwing us and people don't realize that these huge developed countries who aren't facing the impact yet of consumption and pollution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, don't realize the impact they're having on these, on these places. New Zealand has a hole above a, a hole in the ozone layer above us. I think that's why we were a little bit faster to be like, Oh, we're doing bad things. We don't have anything protecting us. So um, I'm clearly brown, right? I got enough melanoma to sit in the sun. I get sunburned in New Zealand. Um, you can't, you can't do it anymore. And I think we're seeing the reality of climate change and the reality of pollution a lot faster than the rest of the world. And I would, I think the sad thing is, is that you can tell people this, but because it doesn't affect their everyday life, they can forget about they it. They can forget about it, right? Yeah. Fiji is where you go to get that really nice water. Um, oh yeah, Fiji water, Fiji really water. expensive water. Yeah, really <laughs> expensive water. Fuji water. Like I remember, and it says that they get the water from Fiji, and okay. I was like, this is insane. This is actually insane um, because the water in Fiji, I, like, I, I just find it entertaining that because of the mythology around the Pacific, there's a um, Tongan academic called Apali Hoafa who talks about this, like the mythology of the Pacific is islands far away 
means that you can sell these bottles of water from the other side of the world for ridiculous amounts because there's some idea that this water is special uh-huh. <laughs> right whereas it's 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 water yeah. <laughs> also don't take water from the Pacific Nations. <laughs> yeah, and this is really perverse because like you're both taking the water from the Pacific uh, Nations, but then it's also contributing to all the pollution that is then impacting those yeah. communities. Yeah, so and then flooding us with salt water because of global warming. Yeah, so it's like sadly like those people. The only way some people might care is because their supply of Fijian bottled water will be affected. Right. right? Like yeah. where's my where's my bougie water? Yeah, <laughs> where's my water or where's my um like I always laugh because Hollywood movies they're always like I'm gonna escape to Fiji, like. Because there's this idea in the American public of that it's this beautiful island far away that's unpopulated and untouched. There are people there. <laughs> it is not a far. We're like the Pacific's pretty lucky because we're neo-colonial, so we've like Fiji doesn't have a colonial government officially anymore. Um, we've got a we've got a like our government systems and our economic system are completely based in the Western world, but we're not like Aotearoa, New Zealand, where. Um, there's there's still like they're still going through a decolonization process um but it's just one of those things where you're like you gotta be kidding me you guys withdrew from our island they took all the sandalwood out of fiji and then they decided there was nothing there and so then they left we took what we needed and now and then they left um that so my husband the island he's from in new way when they first settled new way the english um it took them a few tries new wayans were not happy about it um, <laughs> New Zealand was like, oh, don't worry, England, we'll take care of Niue for you. And because England had done a soil test and they were like, oh, they've got amazing soil. We can grow citrus in Niue and we can make lots of money. And then New Zealand, who had never, the New Zealanders had never been to Niue, were like, oh, well, we'll take care of that for you. And then they eventually got someone to Niue and found out that the land was too difficult to like the rocks and stuff meant that it was really hard to get to the soil. Mm. So, so they took on this island with like, like the oh, hopes of oh. making money and using their resources. And then it just wasn't what they thought it was. And that's like the history of the Pacific is just these different people coming in and being like, oh, this is our land now and our resources. And then they get, they finish with us and they leave and they put someone else in charge. Papua New Guinea we should put a link to free West. Um, we should put a link to free West Papua, so not Papua mm-hmm. New Guinea. Um, West Papua is currently under Indonesian rule. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> for, and the reason that Canada, America, and Australia won't get involved is because they all have mining interests in West Papua, and the West Papuans have said that they don't want the mines. Mm-hmm. So you've got human rights abuses where people are being killed and people are being shot in protest by the Indonesian government, and. No one's doing anything because then they won't get their copper. Huh. <laughs> and it's just like, Argh! And of course, this conversation seems very resonant for, because uh, of course, like the, um, as of today, as of this interview, um, I think uh, Donald Trump has just restarted the, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah. So like the sort of conversation about um, extracting resources from indigenous land is, is everywhere. I was I was terrified. I'm not I'm not American, but the moment that I saw that what he was happening to the EPA, because mm-hmm. those decisions affect my region of the world, right? True. Yeah. And I was like, no, <laughs> we'd only kind of just got you guys on board. Yeah. I already saw rumors about that. Yeah, people like funding from the EPA has already been cut. And Hasn't he cut the humanities as well? Yeah, they want to cut. Um, yeah, NEH, NEH, and NEA funding. Yeah, this has been a grim time. <laughs> I know this is something you get a lot because you're from New Zealand, but what do you feel that um, the impact of Lord of the Rings has done? Because it almost seems like it. I feel like it's, okay, because I feel like there's this weird thing where it almost rather than this is like the reverse of it, like indigenizing the university. Instead, it's almost like it has been like putting the European imagination onto part of the Pacific. Yeah, and that's why a certain friend of mine, whose name I won't mention on the podcast, thought New Zealand was in Europe. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to say who this is. I'm not that sorry. It's kind of hilarious, but it sort of reinforces this idea of that whole region of the world as being a fantastical place. Like yeah. it's supposed to be an actual other world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, before I did education, I, I did my undergraduate in film. Oh. Um, so okay. I am a film nerd. Okay. So 
the film nerd in me is like the Lord of the Rings was the best thing that ever happened to our film industry in some ways because um, Weta Studios came out of it and Weta's done like they're doing Avatar down there mm. um, in terms of in terms of like film and putting us on the map it was really useful that way and it created quite a lot of jobs Weta Studios also does um, internships for Pacific Kids um, oh, to go who want to work in film uh-huh. Um so the film geek in me is like, it was amazing. Um, the like further down my educational career where I decided um, I would do education and I would do things to help Pacific communities. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, because you're right. Mm-hmm. They, like th- this guy wrote this in the middle of Europe. Why are we filming it down the bottom of the South Pacific? And it's because... I yeah I have no idea why well they're too developed up there right there's not yeah. enough the thing with New Zealand is you can do really beautiful long shots and not see any sign or you can pretty pretty easily like CGI out that one power pole um. yeah and it seems to and also then uh, continue the settler colonial myth about that space is like uninhabited oh yeah there was no one there there's still nobody there yeah (laughs) and that's that's the really hard part is that. I went to an internationalization conference um, and they asked me to sit on a panel and respond. And I, over the two days, I was getting more and more angry because they were talking about wanting to do international partnerships between Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Right. Mm -hmm. So with the Pacific, Australia and New Zealand, with the Pacific, Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, so I spent my time saying there are people between Australia, New Zealand and Canada um, <laughs> there is like over there's hundreds of islands it's insane and um, just getting super frustrated that the because New Zealand Australia Canada and the US have those agreements around like why they all decided not to sign the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights until much later because they have agreements about how to stay in power in those countries um, and not have to recognize the indigenous peoples but that also means that these same countries that have so much invested in the Pacific as military bases, um, the way they talk about the Pacific is that the Pacific Ocean is resource rich. So they forget there are islands in that ocean. Mm-hmm. Their main concern is where the oil is in the Pacific and whether the fishing stock is up. Like they don't even register that there mm-hmm. are people there. So I'm quite bad. I. I get increasingly angry, but then I have to remember I'm in a completely different location where, like, people... The Pacific Ocean touches, the like, where we live, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not the Pacific Ocean I know. It's cold. For <laughs> <laughs> starters. Yeah. yeah, definitely not going for a dip in Wreck Beach yeah, right I, now. I just find it ironic that this ocean joins us, but they still don't want to talk about us. Yeah, like, they're also literally talking over you. Like, yeah. you're just, like, you're just a space to be bridged. Yeah, yeah. and my one of my committee members is from um, Vancouver. She's, so she's First Nations from Vancouver Island. Um, and she was saying how, for her, she finds more in common with Pacific peoples and there's communities there who are trying to reach out to the Pacific because that's who they, they see themselves as Pacific Islanders. Um, okay, on the, on the Vancouver coast? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so she's been talking, we've talked a bit about how I get really angry in Canada because we only talk about land when we talk about Indigenous peoples. But the Pacific Ocean is, like for us, the water is just as important. Mm, okay. So it's not just sovereignty over land, it's also sovereignty over the ocean. And at the moment... Some of our some of our people in the Pacific don't have that. Mm-hmm. Some of us do, and some of us don't. And there are so many world powers trying to get in there. Mm-hmm. So our, ours is a like neo-colonial battle, I think, for the in terms of the Pacific region. I'm talking about, yeah, Samoa, Fiji, Tonga. I'm gonna get slammed by some of my Pacific friends when they listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still I'm still learning how to communicate the Pacific as I understand it from down south to the Pacific here. Like I'm still learning how to do mm-hmm. that, and I'm also still learning. Like you guys will know as um, like postdocs, right? You have to learn how to put across really complicated ideas really simply, mm-hmm. and also like I'm not speaking. F- I have to. I'm not an expert in this area. 
by any means. There are so many other people. But actually, like, yeah, speaking of talks, you have a talk coming up next week, right? For the yeah. public scholars thing. Do you so, want to talk a bit about that? And also, Sirianna's going to be doing this really cool thing at um, the UBC Museum of Anthropology, where you, you're going to be leading this round. Do you want to talk about both those things? Yeah, so the Public Scholars Initiative is like a UBC, let's get, um, let's get academia talking to the public again, right? Um, and so to, to be a public scholar, you have to show an invested interest in um, working with the public for public good. I still have yet, the higher education person in me is like, what's public good? And why why is the university doing this? <laughs> um, but <laughs> so my talk, yeah, my talk tomorrow is on um, Pacific education and I'm um, Thursday, Thursday, mm. so Thursday, oh my gosh, <laughs> is about Pacific education. And so currently in New Zealand, only 52% of Pacific students finish their university degree, um, which is a really low number. And um, the New Zealand government gives every university an extra $340 per Pacific student to provide extra support. So like the University of Auckland, which is the biggest university, um, it's the highest ranked, and it's also in the middle of what we call the Pacific capital. So it's where most of the Pacific people in New Zealand live. They got nearly, they got like $888,000 less in 2015 mm. um, to increase Pacific pass rates. And they still had a completion rate of like 51%. Mm. <laughs> what did they do with that money? Uh -huh. um, and so that's kind of what I do is I, I, I'm one of those weirdos who go through all the government websites and government policies and work out what's meant to be happening and then look at whether it's happening or not uh -huh. and then see what universities say they're doing and their like strategic plans and then try to find out what they're actually doing. So... Mm -hmm. they they like you know they're really good at writing big picture yeah um we're going to support pacific learners to be successful our mission statement yeah and then you go okay how are you doing that and they're like uh and then they might have programs like the university of Auckland has amazing programs i worked that was what i did for a job i ran pacific student support but unless those pass rates are moving let's have a conversation because whatever we're doing it's not quite enough or we haven't like looked at the right space so I'm doing that, and then, then I'm doing a talk at the MOA. On at the moment, they've got um, tapestries from around the world, uh, material from around the world. I'm talking about mussy, um, and mussy is a type of bark cloth um, where, uh, and Fijian women make it, and they do these beautiful geometric designs on them, um, and it's really important to me as a Fijian woman. So, like, I got some on my twenty-first. Um, I got some at my wedding I got some when I graduated I got a little piece like it's a it's quite significant and it's found across the Pacific I will always say that the Fijian Masi is the most beautiful um, I'm not biased <laughs> but I'm not. no one's like angry listening to us. excuse me Fijian bias <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's and I'm excited to go and talk about, I mean, I was excited because I was told that the MOA had Pacific collections mm -hmm. and they just hadn't put them out. So I'm excited to go see it um, and to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm pretty, it's one of those things, like there's a little bit of pride, but I'm, it's also another thing. I'm not an expert in mussy making. There is no way, like I am not an expert on any level about mussy. My interaction with mussy has been, that because um, my village doesn't even make mussy, we trade it for kava, um, <laughs> and so or money like, and so mussy for me is um, is a cultural artifact I guess that is used at like at moments of significance. So um, for my baby's first birthday, my mum will make sure that she gets mussy, um, and so that's the sort of like that's as that's where my knowledge is at with it mm -hmm. and I, it feels a bit weird to be seen as an expert when I'm not an expert on any level presenting at a museum about it yeah or they think I'm good at math you know <laughs> it's also like sort of the I guess it's also this extension of both tokenization but also the work of being a cultural ambassador for your group right because right? I makes I want people to know about Masi I want people to know about the Pacific so how do we balance this? It's, that, it's another one of those tensions where do you take the opportunity to have that conversation and have people learn more about a space that you're from 
Or do you say, I'm not the expert, you need to contact the experts, but the experts aren't readily available at this point. And that's a huge problem in higher education in terms of like, um, when I, I know that, so like indigenous scholars always say they do twice the work because they're doing the academic work, but they're also doing the community mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Because if you're that indigenous academic at your university or in your department, you are like, here they get asked to do acknowledgement of territory or welcome to the territory. And people are like, I'm not from the territory. I can't welcome you to a territory that's not mine. <laughs> like, um, like for the public scholars initiative, they were saying that I should go first because I'm indigenous and we would have just done an acknowledgement of territory. And I was like, I'm indigenous to like the other side of the world. <laughs> this is not, it's not, not the same brown. <laughs> I feel like that's also a good slogan. Not the same brown. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's like, that's the tension of when you are like a woman of color going into, I'm quite lucky in education. There's a lot of, there's not a lot of us. There's a lot comparably with other departments, mm-hmm. right? What, what do you do when people come to you um, asking for these things? Because you know how much pressure there is on women of color in the academy. So when you ask them to do these extra things, you know that they're balancing just so much more work. Mm-hmm. And the institution doesn't recognize most of that work too, mm-hmm. right? I did some work on um, with my master's advisor and we were looking at um, the Pacific um, PBRF, which is like a ranking thing in New Zealand. And we were trying to work out how do you, how do you get the institution to recognize that you might give the same talk 15 times over, but you're giving it to 15 different community spaces, Mm. right? That's not a one hour conference talk or like 20 minute conference talk. That is, if you're going to the Pacific community to present, that's like a four hour commitment at least. And if you're doing it in 15 different spaces, that's, (laughs) and there's no space in the institution for that to be recognized. Mm And for it, or they might recognize it, but it's not going to count towards your promotion. I mean, and I I still think, though, for me, it is a much scarier prospect to present to my community than to present to the university because the university doesn't know, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) They don't know the same way my community does. So when I talk to my community, I'm like, I got to make sure I've got this lined up. I got to get rid of my terrible New Zealand, like my, like, Palangi accent with these specific words. Um, I've got to, I've got to make sure that I'm doing, like, I always check with my mom before I'm about to present to our community. I'm like, I need to, am I doing this right? Am I saying the right thing? I've understood this right. But if I'm going to do the same presentation, like in the middle of UBC, I'm just like, they won't know. Like, I still do the same checking, mm-hmm. but there's no one in that audience who's going to be like, uh, you said Talanoa wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I always have a little bit more, f- not, I think I just want to make sure that I'm doing right. Mm-hmm. And it also is sort of funny because, like, again, talking about work that's not acknowledged, it's like, it sounds like your mother has played such a huge role, but, like, she's not going to be your dissertation committee, but almost maybe she should in some ways. Like, she's going to be really important. And, like, does does the acknowledgement sections of our dissertation really do justice to the way that we get that type of support from from non-traditional academic spaces? I get in trouble in presentations because I would take, like, a good two minutes doing my introduction. Because uh-huh. my introduction is, I am named after my great-grandmother. Uh-huh. I am like I carry my husband's name and these are, this is where he's from and just making sure that like for me that it's and usually I have a powerpoint like the powerpoint picture is of my grandmother my bumbo and my family so my parents and my brothers because they're the people that had to do the hard work they still have to do the hard work like my husband is the person who like I don't know where he is. My phone's been vibrating, so he's probably asking me where I am. Um, but, like, he's the one who has to deal with the meltdowns at 2 in the morning um, that people don't see. They get a really nice 20-minute presentation that makes them feel good or makes them challenges them to think. Mm-hmm. But it's my family that does that hard work, mm-hmm. the hard work around um, dealing with listening to the same presentation over and over <laughs> and over again. Or, like, my um, Kala, who gets Facebook messages where I'm like, I really need the Fijian word for extended family because I want to talk about it this. And so then he has to find the right word and we have to have conversations about what that word means and how that works. Because when my mum moved to New Zealand, she was quite young. My bumbu made the decision to move. 
the New Zealand government was telling Pacific migrants that if you teach your kids um, their language, they're going to be stupid. And so you have an entire generation of Pacific people who don't have their language. And that puts, like, I rely on my family for that. And it's, they don't get that acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you can acknowledge them. My husband always says, get a good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until he got here yeah. after we moved to Canada and then he talked to other graduate students who were all like, no, there's no jobs. I was like, shh. Oh, no. <laughs> the gig is up. <laughs> Do not tell this man who's been on a 13-hour flight and moved away from his whole family that there's no jobs. Oh, poor Jay. <laughs> oh. I think, like, I went for a job... Um, and I was really pissed off because I'd done everything, right? And I had a, um off the off the record conversation afterwards. And she said, you were qualified and you had the experience, but you were threatening to a homogeneous society. And I was like, are you kidding me? The brown girl has done everything you guys told mm-hmm. me to do. I got the work experience. I got the degree. And now you're telling me that I'm threatening? Because I'm, mm-hmm. I don't look like you. Like, I played by your rules, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's part of the difficulty as well when we go for job searches, and that's why we're all so frustrated. Because you know everyone's always like, oh, why are you, why are you guys, why are you guys so upset? Like you chose to do that degree, blah blah. Because we were told if you do this, you will get work. Yeah, and you'll be able to help people you care about. Yeah, you know, this is something that the rest of your family like. Our families are so proud of us for doing higher education. Then at some point, we'd have to be like, actually, your job market is terrible. I yeah. know you're really proud of me for getting a PhD, but but actually, this doesn't actually mean I'm going to get a stable job with benefits, you know? Right. Like, after all that, I'm glad you're proud of me, but this is not the reality. And it's a, it's a hard conversation to have. Like, I'm, I'm pretty lucky because I, I did education and I have the professional experience, so I'm which is why I get in trouble with my committee sometimes because I'm trying to keep the academic and administrator option open because um, administrators get paid more than academics in yeah, universities. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> and so I keep those options open, but like it's just really hard to face that you did everything they told you to do, mm-hmm. right? We did all the things they told us to do and we are still facing, we can't, like, it's not even that they told us, they told our communities, right? That goes back to what I was saying in terms of that conflict with the Pacific, where if you go to our university, you can contribute to the economy um, and you will have will have healthier communities and um, all these things. But what they don't say is that, and then the, the further along you go in education, the higher your income potential. But it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the universities need to stop telling that lie because... It's not fair to, <laughs> and you just, I just, it drives me insane because they, the universities say they're doing this community service by bringing in all of these underrepresented groups, I hate that word, um, like to give them access to education, but they're not really, they're giving themselves, they're doing themselves a service because they get the government funding and they mm. get, um, and then they get us to go on and do graduate studies and research and, and they get us as underpaid labor yeah. towards doing TA work. Stick us on a website. Yeah. Look at my lovely brown person. <laughs> Such a bridey brown people. Not too threatening. That's what's... It's crazy. Like, in, in higher education teaching practices, they know. They know that those teaching practices that are more inclusive of everyone, everyone does better. But you still get this resistance where they're like, but I learn in a lecture theater full of 600 people, so why can't they? It's mm-hmm. like, what? But <laughs> it's like, we've actually have a whole discipline called education. Yeah. We have studies. Like, And then Cornell's like, no, you don't. We don't anymore. I know. We're, we're pretty lucky New Zealand has an interest-free loan scheme, as long as you stay in New Zealand. So, um, and then you have to pay your loan. They just take it straight out. So when you get your pay, they just take it straight out. So you never see it. So... Um, in some ways, I say, I think it's good because I never really knew in New Zealand. I was always like, oh, I just get paid this much per fortnight, not really knowing that I was really losing like 40% of my income to pay for um, just the normal taxes mm-hmm. and then my student loan. Mm-hmm. So you have to pay back 15% of your income towards your student loan. But like now my husband and I are trying to like, you know, we have a baby on the way. We have to think about these things. 
And we're both like he's he's a qualified physiotherapist. He has a bachelor of science. He has a postgraduate certificate in science, and he's working in an insurance company because he had to move to Canada to pay for me to live. Um, <laughs> and the reality is, is that like he he did the right things, but it's not quite working. And now we've got this his student loan. We've got my student loan. And how are we supposed to go back to a city that's just been named the fifth most most expensive city in the world to live? to be with the community that I'm doing the research with to come like there's it's it, yeah and yeah. you just and you just you kind of want to like bang your head against the wall because one of the things that scares me with that stat I gave you like that 52% uh, completing their degrees it's $25,000 to get an undergrad degree in New Zealand which I know isn't a lot for you guys it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right and and so these kids get these these 18 year olds are signing off on debt for like $25,000 and they're coming away with nothing <laughs> nothing and they have to pay like that gets taken out of their payslip every fortnight they and somehow we're justifying that as opportunity and I don't yeah instead I, it's almost like indentured servitude in a new form kind of through education and and it, I would understand if we got our degree and we got a good job, but it doesn't happen anymore. Uh-huh. Instead, you like my I didn't realize how bad it was in the States till I moved here. And I had friends who had done degrees in the States and they were like, no, you don't understand. I paid $50,000 for my undergraduate degree. And now I and I could only work in a cafe and minimum wage doesn't apply in the States if you work in hospitality. And I would. This, I got that lecture when I was like, tipping is stupid. Why don't you just pay fair wages? <laughs> um, and, and then it was explained to me that you can be paid $3 an hour if you work in hospitality. And I was like, what the? I know. It's like, it would make sense, except this system here is so broken. Yeah. You and have no idea. I couldn't believe it. I was like, how? And then the minimum loan pay- repayments have nothing to do with your income. But this is the crazy thing. Universities are set up completely like businesses. So if a company wants to come in and be on campus, they have to like, they pay a percentage of their profit to the university. Mm. Um, and it's, it's insane how it's not responsible of institutions. And the BC, some guy in BC government somewhere came to talk at Green when I first got here. And I thought it was hilarious. I can't remember what his role was. He was either on a council or something. And he was talking about how it's irresponsible of UBC to take private money because private companies want UBC to do very specific things and it's irresponsible. Instead, they should take money from the BC government who's prioritizing oil and energy. I was like, you're doing the same thing! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like, you're giving money conditional on UBC increasing their research and their intake into energy and and oil, which is still, you're still... Resource extraction. Yeah, you're still putting this, like... We're going to control what you guys can do, but for some reason you think because you're the government it's better. They're making an experiment. Like UBC just opened their swim- swimming pool. It has a wave pool. Oh yeah, it's like, and also like a lazy. <laughs> oh, not, river, no, not right? a wave pool. Yeah, it has yeah. a lazy river. I mix it up. They have a lazy river in the pool. I'm excited. I like swimming. There's a lazy river, but I also understand that this is the same university that like where food insecurity is real. So why are we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I used to work in recruitment. That was part of what I did, mm. and I really struggled when I first moved to UBC and got some time away from my professional space to really look at like critiques of the university. And I I went through like this moment of I did this to people, like I went out into my community and I said, "Come to university, your life's going to be better. Mm-hmm. Come to university, look at what we're doing. Come to university, you can serve your parents. Come." Like, you know, that was, I did that. That was my job. And I did student support. My job was getting people in, getting them through, getting them to graduation, and I getting them to do graduate studies. And I had that moment of panic where I was like, mm-hmm. I, was, I was part of the machine of getting students in and doing all of this and trying to reconcile spending 10 years doing this and not having an, on, like, not having a moment to have an honest conversation with myself that I was part of that problem. And then, because it's not that I don't think we should be recruiting students in, I just think we should be honest about it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, come and do a BA, but let's think about what you're going to be able to do post the BA, 
right? And if you're happy with doing a Bachelor of Arts and your career options being this, cool, let's do it. But let's not tell them you're going to do a BA and you're going to get a better life and you're going <laughs> to... I get what you're doing because like the reality for my community back home is that when we do these qualifications, it needs to be because we need to put food on the table, we need to provide shelter, and we, we, we don't have that luxury of of doing something, like doing a degree in a certain area because we love it, right? We don't, that's, like, it's a nice, it's nice. Like, my friend that I was telling you about who did the movie, he has a Bachelor of Laws and a Bachelor of Arts in Film mm-hmm. in production. So he did the law degree because that's what his mum wanted, but also... Like, it gave him that security, right? And the amount of Pacific kids I knew who were doing law and something else, engineering and something else, science and something else, because that security of an income afterwards is so... It's it's like a necessity for our community. We don't have the luxury of spending three years... Away. Because the other thing is, is if you're a Pacific student going to university, you're not currently contributing to the family income. Mm. So... Your family has sacrificed so that you can go to university for three years and not contribute or contribute a very minimal amount. And so there has to be some there has to be some payback on that. And it's not and it's really hard because like the neo like that's the neoliberalism thing, right? Where everything should everything you do should lead towards economic contribution. But some of us don't have the luxury of saying, of being like, I don't need to anymore. Yeah, like material circumstances are material circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I'd love to be in a position where my parents had enough money that I could be like, yeah, I'll do whatever. I feel like I'm going to follow my passion. But that's not the reality for everyone. Mm-hmm. I'm... Yes, we should, we should wrap up because... We're getting phone calls, but <laughs> thank you so much, Sariana, for joining us for this conversation. I'm so excited that you're my first UBC person I'm, on the podcast. I'm a little bit anxious because I've never done an interview before, and I'm really worried that some of the stuff I said, my my friends and family are going to be like, "What? You're no Sariana. That's not a thing." <laughs> Since the recording of this episode, Sirianna and Jay have welcomed little baby Alice into the world. Congratulations, Sirianna and Jay. And thanks once again to Sirianna for this uh, fascinating interview and insight into her work and what it means to be an Indigenous Pacific Islander academic. Thanks for listening to, once again, another episode of PhDivas. I'm Dr. Zain Yao. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, leave us a review on iTunes, all that type of great stuff. Feel free to send us a comment or an email to phdivaspodcast at gmail.com and take care of yourselves. Bye.